0: There's this word that Ed Yong over at the Atlantic
1: has gotten a little obsessed with over the last few years. So I'm pretty sure that I have mangled the word every time I say it, but I think it's umwelt.
0: Umwelt is a German word for the idea that each creature exists in a sort of perceptual bubble, a version of the world
1: only they can experience. So all of our perceptions of the world are radically different, even if we're in exactly the same physical space. You know, a human uh, can't see ultraviolet, for example. Um, a bee can, but it can't see the color red. So that idea of the, the sensory bubble is is the umwelt. It is the thin sliver of reality that, that each of us is privy to.
0: Once he started thinking about umwelts, It was impossible for Ed not to see them at work all around him, creating interspecies chaos. He couldn't look at funny animal videos online without being struck by the way humans seem to be totally misunderstanding the animals all around them.
1: I remember watching this TikTok video um, showing a a male Argus pheasant, um, a kind of a peacock-like animal with beautiful feathers displaying at a female. Females walking across in front of him, seemingly looking away. And the joke was, you know, this this pheasant is doing everything he can to attract her attention and she doesn't care. Well, birds have eyes on the sides of their heads. their, Their field of view faces laterally. So the bird could be facing away and looking directly at the performing male. It's a very simple example where our inability to think about the lives of other animals prevents us from sort of understanding what is happening in nature.
0: When you say it like that, (laughs) I just think the way I perceive the world is the world. You're telling me I'm
1: wrong. I am telling you you're wrong, but it's very understandable that you think that, because our senses provide us with the fullness of our subjective experience, um, and that experience feels complete. You know, it's not like I'm sitting here thinking there are, like, gaps in my vision, or there are, you know, I'm, I'm pondering the things I can't smell. My experience feels total, but that totality is an illusion.
0: But there's a problem here. Ed says this illusion has led us to move through the world like we are the only ones there. And animals can't articulate just how devastating this has been for them.
1: There are also things we do that have much grander consequences. Um, We have flooded the world around us with light and with sound. And these, when they occur in places and at times where they don't belong, um, are sensory pollution. They're they're stimuli that are drowning out the cues that animals rely on, that are distracting them from the, the stimuli that they need to pay attention to, with devastating and sometimes fatal results.
0: Today on the show, a little bit of a break from the news with one of our favorite people. It turns out looking at the world from an animal's point of view can totally shift your perspective. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stick around. To really do this show right, we are going to have to go outside. To you and me... Outside sounds something like this. There are some birds in there, some bugs buzzing around. But Ed Yong says there are so many things you are not hearing right now. Even if you try. And Ed, he's tried. So I asked him to help me try. Take me inside the sensory experience of one other animal. We started with bats, because why not? Ed went all the way to Wyoming's Grand Teton National Park to understand their sensory world. He says, what you're hearing right now, it's just a piece of what a bat would experience in the outside world.
1: Yeah. So firstly, bats can see. It's a myth that bats are blind, but they can also operate in pitch blackness, even when there's no light to pad. Even in a sealed room, a bat can avoid obstacles and catch an insect from the air. And it does that through a skill called echolocation. It produces high-pitched calls that bounce off the objects around it, and it then listens out for those echoes. The delay between the call and the echo reveals the distance between the bat and and the object. And the bat can detect such minuscule differences in delays of those rebounding echoes that it can work out the distance to objects around it within like millimeters.
0: Even when you say that out loud, like I can't imagine it, it just kind of breaks my brain to think about seeing in that way.
1: It's extraordinary. Um, you know, we're, we're really thinking about navigating through through sound. You know, it's hard enough to to imagine doing this without like thinking about really what the bats are doing. A bat can make up to two hundred pulses a second in some species. Each one giving a snapshot of the world around it, and it can be so precise that they tend to release each call after the previous echo has returned. Imagine doing that with such fine control that you can pull that off a few hundred times a second.
0: When you wrote about it, you put it in this wonderful way. You said, when a bat says Marco, its surroundings can't help but say Polo.
1: I loved that. Yeah, right. It's a way of tricking a silent world into revealing itself.
0: Part of the reason you were looking so closely at the bats was that you were following a researcher who was trying to understand how humans were messing up the bats' world, and not through the usual ways that we might think about, like pouring chemicals into a stream or having a truck chug out pollution into the atmosphere. It was sensory overload. Can you explain this kind of pollution? Because people may not be thinking about it.
1: Yeah, sensory pollution refers to things like light and noise, like stimuli in the world around us that we chug out into um, our environment and that can be really harmful to other animals. So light pollution, for example, light at night, Um, light at a time when it doesn't normally occur can distract pollinating insects from the plants that they pollinate. You know, moths and other nocturnal creatures can hover under street lamp for hours, sometimes dying from exhaustion. Some bats might be attracted to that feast of insects. Others might themselves be driven away by light. There are many examples of this, of, of light at night affecting other animals really badly. You know, a lot of birds, millions of birds every year die through collisions with like communication towers. So turtle hatchlings always head towards the ocean following lights that shine off the ocean surface. But if there are um, human made lights in the opposite direction on a beach, they'll head that way instead. And sometimes with fatal results.
0: Because it looks like the water?
1: Yeah, because it looks like the water.
0: That's so sad.
1: I know it's really sad. Um, you know, I was reading this report um, from Florida uh, where they talk about you know baby turtles wandering into bonfires and like piles of dead baby turtles collected under like a mercury vapor lamp in some random property. It's really tragic, and you know this is an example where again we we've changed the natural world in a way that doesn't really pay attention to the sensory lies of other animals.
0: Part of what surprised me when I read your work was how quickly the light pollution in particular had expanded. Like, I think you cite a researcher who said in 2001, you know, 25% of the world was sort of drowned in light pollution. By 2016, it was like 83%. It just seems like a really fast change. How did that happen so quickly?
1: Well, there's just a lot more of us. <laughs> there's, um, there's more people uh, move towards more urban settlements. Light abounds to a greater degree than it used to.
0: Can talk about sound? Because I think that a lot of people know that animals communicate through calls and songs. We obviously use our voices. How are humans disrupting how animals communicate with each other?
1: Yes, noise pollution is you know, just as important an issue as light pollution is. We absolutely fill the world with noise from traffic, from aircraft, from the sounds of industry. Sometimes, you know, just from the sounds of our own voices. And again, you know, as with light, we don't necessarily think of this as pollution but it very much is. There was one like um, great experiment where um, the same researchers who I went to the Grand Tetons with, led by Jesse Barber, set up this phantom road. Um, they just like lashed speakers to trees and played the sound of a road, the sound of traffic moving past. And what they found is in this area, which is a stopover for migrating birds, a third of the normal species that would go there stayed away. And those that actually stayed there, weighed less. They put on less weight, which again is really bad if you've got a long and difficult migration ahead of you.
0: And there were no actual cars, no actually anything that could like hurt them. It was just sound.
1: Exactly. It's such a great way of excluding all the other things that roads have. You know, it's not like the the cars are hitting the birds. It's not like the exhaust is putting them off. It's just the sound. The sound alone is enough to shrink the community of birds that use this area by a third and to harm some of the rest who choose to remain. And that's that's just one of many examples in which the presence of sound pushes animals away from habitats that would actually be great for them. That drowns out the noise, the, the calls, the alarm calls, the mating songs and the other forms of communication that they rely upon. Yeah, you, you talk about how ships also make a lot of
0: noise in the ocean and how that disrupts those kinds of habitats as well.
1: Yeah, Jacques Cousteau famously described the ocean as a silent world, and it really isn't. The ocean is rich with noise from animals, from natural sources, but now increasingly from human sources, from ships, um, from drilling, from industry. And that noise pollution in the ocean is, is again, a huge problem for the animals there. Um, That whales produce these infrasonic low-pitched calls that once upon a time would have travelled pretty much the distance of an
0: ocean.
1: Whales might have been able to hear each other whales over vast and almost unimaginable distances. But that range has been massively shrunk over recent decades because um, I think it's something like a 30-fold rise in shipping noise. As the ocean gets louder, the range over which animals can hear each other decreases. And because whales are so long lived, you know, there are probably whales now alive that once had a memory of, like, hearing other whales over vast distances and whose worlds have now shrunk. I find that incredibly tragic. And we can see a mirror of that in our own lives. You know, when, when COVID first happened and people hunkered down, a lot of people talked about, um, oh, I can suddenly hear a lot of birds. What, what's up with that? Nature is healing, right? Um <laughs> And that's partly because the world got quieter. We could hear more, or we could hear it over larger distances. This is why I say sensory pollution, light and noise pollution is the pollution of disconnection. It severs us from the cosmos, from the animals around us, you know, from the nature that surrounds our lives. We become oblivious to it. Light and sound, in times or places where it doesn't belong, can be uh, as ecologically devastating as, say, like a raised rainforest or a bleached coral reef. We need to think about it as, as an ecological problem of that kind.
0: After the break, why sensory pollution might be easier to address than you think, if we just have a little empathy. You're making a pretty good case that something has to change here, but human behavior is so difficult to change. Like, mm. we haven't fixed <laughs> the first kind of pollution. You know, we're still mm-hmm. doing that. How are we going to get people to move to the sensory
1: pollution? Is it possible that maybe we're all going to adapt? sure a lot of animals are going to adapt and and some already have started you know there are spiders that have started building webs around street lights because it makes it easier for them to catch insects great news for them they're going to thrive in this in this modern world but a lot of creatures won't um they they will struggle to they will move too slowly their senses simply can't be retuned in in the at the pace that's necessary and the studies that have tried to look at these kind of net effects tend to find that the communities get smaller and just more homogenous. So we're, we're flattening um, the sensecapes of the world too by pumping all this light and noise out. And um, what we're going to end up with is a more impoverished world, a less diverse world. And I, I think that's going to eventually ricochet back onto us. But one thing that differentiates sensory pollution from a lot of other ecological problems is that it should be relatively easier to fix.
0: You mean because we can just turn off the lights?
1: Basically, yeah. You know, sometimes it's really as easy as flicking a switch or getting an engine to spin more slowly. This isn't like, say, plastics, which are going to continue being a part of the environment even if we switch off all production tomorrow. Light and sound pollution in the main, just disappear if we decide to make them disappear. It's an immediate ecological win. And it's a very, very rare example of an ecological problem that can be immediately and and dramatically reduced if we have the political will to do so.
0: Can you give me some examples of folks who are trying to address this sensory pollution and how it's working?
1: Yeah, so you know, I I went to uh, the Grand Tetons and watched um, a group of scientists do this experiment where they changed the lights in a car park from white, which is pretty standard, to to red, which seems to be better for a lot of wildlife. It was incredible. Like once the lights changed, I felt. Like I could see a lot further. I felt I could see more than I used to. And I looked up and I could finally see the stripe of the Milky Way, like our own galaxy stretching across the sky. I've never seen that in the Northern Hemisphere before. And it was achingly beautiful. And it was a reminder of how much we're missing in our own lives, let alone how much we're blanketing out in the lives of other animals. So switching off lights is a very good example. You can do it at night. You can do, you can put um, barriers that stop lights from shining straight up into the air and, um, you know, affecting migrating animals. It has the added advantage of you're not burning as much energy, too. Right. There are efficiency arguments here, for sure. You know, the same goes for noise pollution in the seas. Like, just getting ships to slow down not only is economically sensible, but also greatly reduces the amount of noise pollution. Why is it economically sensible?
0: Because I, I'm i just thinking of it in terms of go-go capitalism.
1: You save fuel and you reduce emissions. And actually that's a reason why um, in some parts of the world ships have been forced to slow down in ways that are actually also good for wildlife. So, you know, this this is a win-win possibility here that is often quite rare in these in these debates.
0: You talked about this one experiment with sound that I thought was so interesting, where a researcher had gone, I think, to the Great Barrier Reef, and the coral was dying, and they were worried about that. And they realized that when the coral died, it was silent. Mm
1: -hmm. And that
0: was a problem because animals used the sound. What did they do to try to fix the problem?
1: Yeah. So coral reefs are are actually like thrumming with with noise. Uh, They have a lot of other creatures living inside them. And those creatures make a lot of sound. And that sound guides baby fish back to the reef from the open ocean where they uh, spend their early life. If the sound doesn't exist, the fish won't go back to the reef and the reef becomes more impoverished. By simply putting speakers in parts of um, bleached coral reef and playing recordings um, from those same reefs at a time when they were healthy and full of noise, these researchers found that um, fish were more likely to return to these areas and the areas were healthier as as a result. Now, you know, to be clear, this is a a very much a sticking plaster solution. If we continue letting climate change run amok, the the coral reefs are not going to be happy. And, you know, a coral reef is a big place, you're not going to be able to string up speakers all around it. But This does show how, like, thinking about the senses of other animals can lead to possible solutions for preserving or giving um, degraded habitats the best possible chance of recovering. It can't be the only thing we do, but it's absolutely part of the things we could do. And it it flows from trying to understand the umwelt of other animals.
0: You use this term rewild, to describe the potential results of this process. And it's really tantalizing that humans like us who've done so many things wrong could be the people who make the planet primal again. But I can't help but think like, we never know the consequences of human intervention until it's too late. And if we're manufacturing wild conditions, like, won't we just do it wrong? all over again, doesn't it just make them inherently unwild?
1: Yeah, this is a great question. Um, I, I do think that, yes, we have a history of like trying for ecological solutions that have massively backfired. I don't think that's the case here because I think these problems have been pretty well studied. You know, I'm not telling you anything that isn't based on like decades of work by a lot of um dedicated people. I, I think we've got a good basis from which to act. And then the question becomes like if we act, are we not just imposing a different kind of artificiality upon the world? I, I think that that framing, though, does put humans as being separate from the world around us. You know, and a lot of like conservation messaging is sort of does does implicitly buy into that. You know, it, it describes. Um, nature is something that we are not a part of and that we must remove ourselves from. I'm actually not arguing that. I'm arguing from the basis that we are part of nature, like that we are an inextricable part of the natural world. We just need to find ways of living with other animals in the same space and that we can do that. We don't have to fill those spaces with light and noise. The, The solutions are not animals cannot live near human settlements or we must pull ourselves away from where animals are it's that we can be very sensitive to their senses and change the ways we operate so that we can coexist. And I think that coexistence is is necessary. You know, it's it's the only way we're going to protect um, the natural world on a planet where, like, we also have to exist and thrive. I think that is possible. And part of the point of this book is to say that, like, wilderness, the concept of wildness is, is not removed from us. It is literally in our backyards. It's, it's something that surrounds us all the time in, in the wilds of the and of other creatures. We can be respectful of that and we can understand and tap into that without needing to pull ourselves away from it.
0: Ed Yong, I'm always so grateful to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Ed Yong is a science writer over at The Atlantic. He's also the author of An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms All Around Us. And that's the show. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Mary Wilson, Carmel Dalshad, and Madeleine Ducharme. We are getting a ton of support right now from Anna Rubinova, Anna Phillips, and Jared Downing. We are led by Joanne Levine and Alicia Montgomery, and I'm Mary Harris. We'll be back in this feed bright and early tomorrow.